Please remain standing as we come to today's preaching passage. It comes from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Sometime soon after the Second World War had finished, there were two American soldiers, infantrymen, who were enjoying the celebrations after the Second World War in the city of London in the United Kingdom. And as they were wandering around and having a good time and rejoicing and celebrating the, the triumph that had taken place now that the war had uh, finished, they got lost. They weren't quite sure where they were anymore. London, for those of you who know, and I grew up in in that area, uh, is basically one big city made up of lots and lots of little villages in the end, medieval villages and even earlier. And so you can turn down a street and it isn't obvious. It's not like New York City, which is laid out on a grid. I mean, you, you know, you go down that road and you take a left and you go down that road. It's pretty obvious. You do that in London, you get lost fairly soon. So anyway, they got um, disorientated, and they bumped into another American there. And they went up to him, and they said, uh, do you know where we are? What they didn't realize is that the other American, because he also was not wearing uniform, because they were celebrating the end of uh, World War II, was actually a general. And they were just two lowly soldiers. And the general sort of got all high and mighty, looked at the two lowly soldiers and said, do you know who I am? To which they replied, now we're in trouble. We don't know where we are and he doesn't know who he is. (laughs) Which is a fair summary of the 21st century. We don't know where we are and we don't know who we are. As we come to 
Easter week or Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. Our task together is to hear the reorientation of Mark's gospel so that we know who we are and we know where we are and where we're going and what the meaning of life is. And one of the biggest challenges of all that is that the fundamental issue according to Mark's gospel and really according to the Bible is not who I am, but who he is. And when we grasp who he is, then we truly know where we're going and we truly understand who we are and we understand what life's about. Now this uh, story in, of Palm Sunday is very familiar to those of us who've been around uh, church circles at all. And yet, as Mark tells the story, it's actually a surprise that too is a challenge. We're so familiar with it, it's going to be hard for us to grasp the intended surprise of uh, the original message of Palm Sunday. So as we get into it together, why should we listen to what we're going to be thinking about together over the next few minutes? Uh, first of all, if you're someone who's interested in Christian things, uh, Palm Sunday is familiar to you and you will want to understand what the real meaning of Palm Sunday would be. So it's going to be worth thinking about that together. Second, if I am right that one of the, if not the foundational issues of our day is identity and purpose, that is who are we and where are we going, and if indeed it is true that the story of Easter, which of course is the very central story of the Christian faith, answers those questions by re reorientating ourselves around Jesus and who he is, then again we're going to want to listen because that's going to affect issues of identity at high school and, and college and um, in the workplace and in the culture and in the church and in our own personal lives and what career I should follow and what choices I should make with my life and who I should marry and all of that. So it's going to be important to listen. So for those two reasons, among many others, let's give it our attention. As I say, it's a surprise. Now to hear the surprise, we need to start further back and then work into what Mark is saying. So let's start really far back and get orientated around the basic message of the Bible. <laughs> That's a, not going to spend a long time arguing my case of what the basic message of the Bible, because then we'll be here until next Easter. But foundationally, the basic message of the Bible is not what a lot of people think it is. A lot of people think that the message of the Bible is a bunch of religious rules, or they think it's a sort of theocratic, aggressive, ancient text that, that is filled with blood and mayhem in the Old Testament, and they're not quite sure how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament God, and maybe they're different. And, or, or they just think it's sort of um, an invented bunch of 
ancient mythology that doesn't relate in any way to contemporary science and cosmology. And so they just put it in one little parcel in their brain as finished and not relevant. But actually, the Bible, written by many different people over many different years, has miraculously a coherent message. And the coherent message of the Bible is, roughly speaking, something like this. We began in paradise, and we miss it. We know that the world is not the way it should be, and we have a memory of what we were meant to be like, and what beauty is meant to be like, and what glory is meant to be like, and what transcendence is meant to be like. And we, we, we have that image of God in us. And we, we, yet, though we began in paradise, according to the Bible, the Bible story, we're clearly not in paradise. There's the war in Ukraine. There's the, the, the mental challenges that many people face today. That there's crisis and conflict and, and death and, and moral failure and, and all of that. And clearly we're not in paradise. And the Bible is very frank about that. It tells stories about the failures of political leaders, the failures of religious leaders, the failures of family. And that's why there's so much blood and mayhem in the Bible because there's blood and mayhem in the world. And it tells us the reality of that's what it is like. We're, we began in paradise, but we're clearly not in paradise. And then the other sort of major building block of the Bible is that God is a redeemer and he's redeeming a people for his own possession and ultimately that redeemer is Jesus. That's the basic message of the Bible. Now Mark's gospel, so that we're starting right, right far back, Mark's gospel also has an overall message. So there are four gospels, Mark is one of the four and Mark's in each of the, each of the gospels are the stories about Jesus and how he's the redeemer but they tell that story in different ways and Mark's gospel tells the story around the theme of Jesus being the son of God. It begins, Mark 1 verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark says, the author of the gospel, he never again himself tells us the answer that Jesus is the son of God. Instead, he tells stories they're intended to evoke the question among the readers, who is this? Who is this? Who could this be? Until the, the answer is put on the lips of, of uh, the centurion, as we'll see when we get to Good Friday, when he sees Jesus at the cross and he says, surely this is the Son of God. And he's giving the right answer. This is the Son of God. And then Mark has three basic movements in his gospel, the one around the ministry of Jesus around Galilee in the north of the country, and another on the way as he moves from Galilee to, Galilee to Jerusalem, which is going to be the pinnacle of his ministry, and then a whole the, the massive section around his death and then his resurrection, which proves, by the way, all the gospels massively emphasize the cross because the cross is the point of Jesus' life. He came to die, which itself is an extraordinary thing. You don't normally tell biographies whereby the, most, the majority of the story is about how someone died, but that's the way the gospels are told because that's the pinnacle, that's the point, as we'll see on Good Friday and then on Easter Sunday for uh, the, resurrection, uh, the, the Resurrection Sunday. This so we started right back the Bible now Mark's gospel now this this story is in the middle of Mark's story uh, uh, particularly 
the end point of the journey to Jerusalem. So you'll see that Mark indicates that at the beginning, Mark 11 verse 1. Now they drew near to Jerusalem. He's, he's almost at that, that movement of his story. And then again, uh, verse 11, and then he entered Jerusalem, then transitions to the Jerusalem part of his story. And this triumphal entry, as I say, has a surprise. What's the surprise? The surprise is who gets it. It's not who you would think. And Mark sets that up for us just amazingly. So if you have a Bible, you don't, I'll just tell the story to you. But in, right before that, he just so beautifully sets it up that you have the disciples, uh, particularly James and John, who realize that Jesus in some way or other is the king, in some way or other is important, and what they say to Jesus is, we want to sit on your left and your right hand when you come into your, into your, into your kingdom, into your glorious uh, position. And Jesus says, well, that's not, that's, that's not granted to me to give, but to those who it was prepared. Of course, to be on Jesus' left and his right when he finally comes into his kingdom is to be crucified with Jesus on his left and his right. They didn't get that at all. And so they, 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 they're, they're saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, we, we want something special for you. We want to be very important. And Jesus says, turns to them and says, what do you want from me? And then the answer, we want to be on your left and your right. We want glory. And as Mark tells the story, having Jesus having given that answer, sort of pulling him off, you don't understand that this is really all about my sacrificial death for the sins of the world. You haven't got that yet. So he tells the story. Then as Jesus is on the way, remember this middle section of him walking, going on the way till he gets to Jerusalem and all these different events and stories that Mark tells. And this is one about James and John with their request. And now comes blind Bartimaeus, a blind man sitting at the road. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus turns to him with exactly the same questions. He just asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? They, James and John wanted glory. What, what, what does blind Bartimaeus want? Blind Bartimaeus, he says, I want to see. That's all. I just want to see. He gets it. James and John don't. Blind Bartimaeus does. Now, <laughs> he comes almost to Jerusalem, and who gets it? Well, you have the disciples, and they sort of get it. So in verses 1 through to 7, uh, Jesus uh, commands them to go and get this donkey, and we'll think about that in a moment, and, and they obey, and they go and do it, and almost certainly Jesus has, has set that up. So this isn't like a miracle that he knew that this donkey, this colt, the, the young donkey would be ready. It, Jesus has prepared in advance for this to happen, and there's a certain code word that he's, or a phrase, when someone comes to you and says, the master needs it, then you know that I, the, the donkey's for me, and so he gives them that code word, and they, they obey, they go and do it, but, but how much do they really understand what's going on? They put cloaks on the donkey instead of a saddle to make it more comfortable, presumably for Jesus to sit on it, and that's how they use their cloaks, but the, the people, the people use their cloaks in a much more symbolic way. So the people take their cloaks, verse 8, and spread them on the road. And they take the leafy branches. They, they weren't just waving them. It's fine to wave them. Of course, that's a beautiful thing we had early in the service. But when they've got them, they put them on the ground. 
what they're doing is this. They put their, take off their cloaks. You know, they take off their jacket, take off their cloaks. They get the branches. They put it on the ground. What they're doing is they're saying as Jesus is riding on a donkey that they're, in our terms, they're rolling out the red carpet. This is the guy. Watch him. They put their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to ride over their clothes. They get branches to make it clear that he is the king. He's the guy. He's walking. He's riding on the donkey on the red carpet. Like They get it. And Jesus is deliberately evoking that response by choosing to ride on a donkey. Now, I was saying to some uh, people earlier this week that I was teaching in a class that one of the challenges for me as a preacher, and I was giving them some lessons on how to preach sermons, and that there are challenges when you're a young preacher, and there are challenges when, well, I was going to say when you're an old preacher, but none of you think I'm old, really, do you? So when you're an experienced preacher. Um, one of the challenges you've, is, for me is I have preached so many sermons on Palm Sunday. Like, I've preached this passage a lot. But as I was thinking about, and and so the challenge is to let the text speak again to you, to me, and therefore I hope through me to you. As I was thinking about this again, it fascinated me how little conversation there is about the donkey. Now we know it's somehow related to humility. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says that. He comes humble riding on a donkey, not on a war horse. So he's, 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 it's some sort of statement of humility and peace. He hasn't come to conquer. He's not that kind of king. He's a king who will die on the cross. He's a saving king, not a conquering king. It, it, we know it's related to that. But, but, but why? Why the donkey? And the answer to that is much earlier in the Bible stories. I remember I told you this big story of paradise and fall and redemption, and there are lots of sub-themes of that story, and one of them is related to this donkey. So Jacob, in Genesis 49, predicts that the king will come, the Messiah will come. The Messiah is just the anointed one, which means the king. The way that he would indicate that he was the king was that he would be anointed, that is, be Messiah, that the Christ would come, the king would come. He predicts that this king would be riding on a donkey all the way back to Genesis 49. And then the book of Judges, which is this strange book where there's constant battle over the issue of authority and who really is in charge and that there was no king and the people did as they saw fit and there are all these other people trying to grab authority. One very strange figure takes all his children, 30 or so, and he puts them on donkeys. Why? To indicate that he thinks they are royal. They're the king. And then David, when he wants to indicate that his son Solomon is the rightful king, puts him on his mule, some sort of animal. We don't, by the way, that's another thing here. Exactly what kind of donkey or uh, mule, or, was it a male or female? It's like we're not quite sure. Another, you know, there's only ever been, as far as I can figure out, I've got thousands of books, and I, I've looked into this and researched as much as I can, and maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I can figure out, there's only ever been one monograph, like book dedicated to what the donkey means in the Bible. It's fascinating to me. Only one, 2011. Well done. He, the guy came from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He, he wrote it. It was good. 
So if you want to write another book that only has one book on it, write a book on what the meaning of the donkey is in the Bible. You'll be the second. And, and so David did that to indicate that Solomon was the king. And then Zechariah is saying he's the king. So when Jesus picks the donkey, what he's saying is, I'm the king. And we know from there's this uh, uh, um, literature in between the Old and New Testament that's called um, intertestamental literature. We know from that literature, rabbinic literature, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, that when you went to a feast, you weren't meant to ride. You were meant to walk as a pilgrim. But Jesus rides on a donkey. Yeah, he's humble, but he's the king. And so that, it reshapes all our ideas of what it really means for God to be. What the Bible is saying is that the kind of king you should be looking for is that kind of king. He's the king. He's in charge. He's the son of God, as Mark will make this case over and over and over again. He's God himself, incarnate, and yet the kind of king he is is the one who rides in on a donkey. And those who've come with Jesus on his journey, by the way, almost certainly those who praise Jesus on Palm Sunday and those who say crucify Jesus on Good Friday are not the same group of people. The, one who, the ones who are praising Jesus on the way into Palm Sunday are those who've come with him on the journey. He, it's a verse 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting. These are the, this is the crowd that's been coming with him as he gets ready to come to Jerusalem. And they get it. They, they quote from Psalm 118, Hosanna, that is salvation. Salvation is somehow connected to his rule. That's what they're saying. Salvation is in him and therefore they're praising him. He's the saving king. Blessed is, one, is the he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They get it. The people get it. Mark's saying, they get it. But then, remember I said that this was Jesus on the way to Jerusalem and now he's just about into Jerusalem. Then he enters Jerusalem and he goes and looks at the temple and the temple is absolutely silent. All these people have been saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you know, Hosanna in the highest. And he goes to the temple and what happens? Nothing. Nothing. And of course what Mark is saying is it's a surprise. The people get it, the temple doesn't. And that's indeed exactly what he will see, uh, he will show as he goes through the story with the, the fig tree that is cursed, then withered, which is symbolic of the temple, not receiving it's king. They don't get it. And of course, therefore, what Mark is doing as he tells this story is he's saying it's a surprise who gets it, and then he's looking out at us, his readers, and saying, what about you? Who's your king? This donkey king if I'd asked that question who's your king hundreds of years ago 
in um, 17th century England, it would have been an issue of conflict because there were various challenges for the kingdom. But the question would have been, you know, is it Charles I, Charles II, James I, James II? Who's your king? And of course, the British ended up killing one of those. <laughs> if you'd asked that question in ancient Roman society, it would have been Augustus Caesar or um, one of his many followers. If you ask that question in contemporary America, the question would be abstracted one further out to say who's really in charge here. We would think of perhaps cultural wars or who's going to be the president or who's in charge, who's the king. But really and truly... If we're really frank with ourselves, in our contemporary society, the king, it's me, the individual. I get to determine what's right. I decide who I am. I am king. And that's why we're so confused. That's why we don't know who we are, because that isn't who we are. We're not the king. That's why we have so little purpose. We're designed for far more than that. We're made in the image of God, but we're not God. And it is only when, unlike the temple, but like the people, you gather as we're gathering now and we're gathering together again, God willing, long past COVID, we can gather now. As we gather together, it's only when we dethrone King I... and enthrone King Jesus. It's only then that we discover who we really are and who we are really made to be and what our purpose in our life truly is. And it's why the temple, which didn't accept King Jesus, is so silent and sad and somber Whereas the people, <laughs> they're having a party. Because now their life means something. The Redeemer King has come. It's a very, as I say, it's a surprising story for many, many different reasons. And Mark here is telling us the surprise, of course, is 
who gets it and who doesn't. There's another, there's another part of the surprise, though, which is when it takes place. If I was writing this story, I would put the triumph after the resurrection, wouldn't you? Like, he's still got to die. Why is it here? J.R.R. Tolkien um, criticized C.S. Lewis for the way he wrote the Narnia stories by inserting Santa Claus because he thought it was so random to put Santa Claus in the line, the witch and the wardrobe. But maybe it was random and who am I to critique J.R.R. Tolkien and necessarily approve C.S. Lewis, but maybe it was random. But what's really fascinating about the intuition that C.S. Lewis had about sticking Father Christmas or Santa Claus into the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when he put him there, before Aslan had died, before Aslan had risen again. Why? Because this king is a saving king, and his kingdom is established through the cross, and his triumph the resurrection and his coming return is un, unshakable. You can even celebrate now. So who is your king? Yourself or Jesus? I hope you'll join us with the journey as we walk through uh, this Passion Week, Good Friday, and then an Easter Sunday and bring people with you. The famous scientist Albert Einstein was one time in his latter years on a train somewhere in the Princeton area. And uh, on the train, uh, the conductor came up to him, the the guy, the ticket collector, came up to him and asked um, Einstein for his ticket to prove that he was, you know, had bought a ticket and was allowed to be on the train. And Einstein, who was famously forgetful, um, rummaged through his pockets desperately looking for the ticket one after the other and, and after it just couldn't seem to find it and the, the ticket collector said, oh professor, don't worry, we, we all know who you are and it's fine. And the ticket collector went on collecting tickets throughout the rest of the, the, uh, the carriage, the, 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 the compartment where in that train where Einstein was and kept on moving down and collecting tickets from one person after the other. And then he looked back over his shoulder and saw that Einstein was on his knees on the floor, looking underneath the the seats, desperately trying to find the ticket. And he comes back to Einstein. He says, Professor Einstein, we, we all know who you are. It's fine. And Einstein, his mentor, looked up at the ticket collector and said, Young man, I know who I am too. I just don't know where I'm going. Well, I hope you know who you are now, a child of King Jesus. Where are you going? We'll find out more about that on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the King. Help us to enthrone you as King this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.